good morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses in just a minute, so you may want to turn to that. As you're doing that, let me take care of a, a housekeeping matter. As you know, we've been through the process of electing deacons. Um, these men will be joining the deacon body. Uh, if they are elected, you've been nominating them, and uh, we've been processing that. I have four names to bring to you uh, for your consideration. They are uh, Jeff Baldwin, David Bowler, Seth Heiserman, and Brad Smeltzer, and these men are nominated before us to be uh, deacons. Um, we will vote on their election on the 28th at both morning services. I tell you that. First, because I want you to be here. Second, because the constitution of our church says I have to tell you that. So um, that makes it official. But uh, Sunday night, the 21st, uh, these men will be giving their testimonies, and that's always a great time uh, rejoicing to see what God has been doing in the lives of others. So uh, be in prayer about this. Come prepared to vote on October 28th, all right? Yes, you will do that. Very good. All right, so we look at the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And the first seven verses um, are a letter, if you will, uh, to the church at Ephesus. Um, we're not going to be looking at the book of Revelation. I'm not starting a, a Revelation study this morning. I, want, I just wanted for us to look at what Jesus had to say about the church at Ephesus. Um, and there's several items in there that might be a little harder to understand if we don't just pause a moment to, to get them clear in our minds. Uh, the first one is in the first verse, he says the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. You know, what, what's with that? Well, um, it's actually explained for us partially in chapter 1 uh, where it says that Jesus, the Son of Man, uh, holds the seven stars. And then it says, and the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And by the way, there are seven churches mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So each star is an angel of a particular church. And so he's going to be writing to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, some people have thought, well, there's an angel assigned to every church up in heaven. And that's, that's kind of a nice thought. And uh, um, make a great series on Hallmark Channel or something. But uh, more, more likely is that the word uh, for angel in the Greek is a word that means messenger. And so when it says, holds the seven stars, the seven angels, the seven messengers, uh, and that messenger, most scholars think, is probably the lead pastor or the teaching pastor, the pastor of the church. So <laughs> I'm the angel. <laughs> Thank you, Debbie. Uh, so uh, so that's, that's really what we're talking about. So he says, when, to the angel, to the messenger, to the one through whom the word of God is being taught and and conveyed to the congregation. That's what he means there. And then and the second part of that, he says, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, chapter 1 also explains that for us, that these lampstands stand for the seven churches. And so uh, the idea is that up in heaven, uh, Jesus is walking in the midst of a room and it has all these lampstands in it. And one lampstand you go to, and there it says uh, Thyatira, Church of Thyatira. And then another one you go and says the Church of, of, of Laodicea. And then you go to another one, it's the Church of Pergamum. You go to another one, it says the church of Ephesus. And so each church has a lampstand in heaven 
um, Bert and I like to talk about uh, the fact that in heaven, all churches have a lampstand. Uh, whether it's functioning or not is another question, but, but we get a lampstand in heaven. And so one of the things we'll do when we get to heaven, I don't know if this is true or not, but, but you know, go with me on this, is that uh, we'll, we'll go into this really large room, and there there will be a lampstand for every church there's ever been. You know, and we'll wander around because, after all, we got eternity times eternity uh, to spend, and in, in heaven is infinitely interesting, and we never get bored. And so, this is one of the things we'll do: we'll walk around and we'll say, "Oh, look, there's a lampstand for the Church of Waldorf," and we'll just pause and we'll praise God and we'll tell testimonies and we'll sing stories about about how God has been working in this church. So, um, the idea is that Jesus is walking in the midst of these lampstands, that is, Jesus is present in the midst of the churches. This is an amazing supernatural thing to claim. You know what we're saying? We're saying right now, as we are worshiping together, we're not viewing ourselves as, wow, this is a neat crowd that we got here by great marketing techniques and, and branding, and, and we managed to convince so many clientele to come in and frequent the establishment so that the franchise can go. No, what we believe is that the Holy Spirit of God has led each person here, and as we are worshiping, God himself is present. Jesus himself is present in our midst. That's a supernatural thing that happens whenever we gather together for worship. So that's what he's talking about in verse 1. Now, later on, I think it's in verse uh, uh, 6, he says, I, uh, I have this uh, for you. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, who are the evil Nicolaitans. We don't know. Uh, we surmise, though, from certain clues that the Nicolaitans were a group of people claiming to be Christian but who were compromising the Christian gospel with paganism in various ways, either in their practices or in their teaching. Um, there's some indication that they may even have, have accepted pagan immorality and, and sort of uh, chastised the other believers, saying, hey, look, you've got to get with the times. Nobody believes that anymore. Um, this, this is the way it is, and so uh, we, we've got to go, go with the flow. And so the Nicolaitans seem to have been people who were compromising the gospel um, uh, by mixing it in with, with the pagan culture of their day. So that would be the reference to, to the Nicolaitans. And then finally, at the very end, he says, I will, to the one who overcomes or who conquers, that is the person who gets it and employs their life by faith and the grace of God. But uh, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Now, here's how significant that is. This is the last book of the Bible. If you go all the way to the first book of the Bible, you see that when God, when God uh, planted the Garden of Eden, uh, one of the things he did was he put in two trees. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other was the tree of life. The, uh, the, our first parents, Adam and Eve, got in trouble with the knowledge of good and evil tree because by partaking of its fruit, they were knowingly violating the commandments of God. Sin entered into the human race because of that, that experience. And so by eating of the knowledge of tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, they, they actually came to be and to know that they were sinners. And God looked at that and he said, look, we can't let these folks now eat of the tree of life. Why? Because that would be an eternal life that would be put into them and they would then exist in their sins for all eternity. In other words, God out of his great grace said, I cannot let Adam and Eve, those sinners though they are, I can't let them stay there. I've got, I'm, I'm working for their salvation. And so actually as an act of God's grace, he drove them out of the garden. You remember that? And established the cherubim to guard the gates to Eden so that they couldn't get back 
and make their condition even worse than it was already. Now, the promise is at the end of the Bible that we eat of the tree of life. And that is that we have that everlasting life, that eternal life that God would give to us in Jesus Christ. And in fact, in the last chapter of the book of Revelation, uh, there's a description of a garden, and it says, in that garden is the tree of life from which we eat. And so, if you think about it, the Bible begins with a garden, it ends with a garden, and there's a garden in between, the Garden of Gethsemane. So I get, just give that to you. That's what we're talking about when we get to that spot in this letter. The rest of it, I think, will be fairly straightforward for you, okay? Uh, so let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 2, read the first seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so easily distracted Sometimes by the trivial things of life, our attention is drawn away from you and we become concerned about inconsequential things. But Father, even the things that we count important, our, our families, our careers, our health, uh, Father, our, our, our movement in society and culture, Father, we even let these things take our eyes off you sometimes. And so, Father, first I would pray that you would forgive us but then your Holy Spirit would move us to fix our gaze upon you and upon your glory so that even when we are dealing with the important things of life, you are still first of all. That when we are dealing with those things that need attention, you have our first attention. Even when we look at things that, that matter, we would know that you matter most. And so, Father, that you would be glorified that even when dealing with other things, we would see them in the light of who you are and consider them in the light of your wisdom and surrender them to your will. Father, we are easily distracted, but you are never distracted from us. You constantly are aware and come to us and minister to us. Thank you. We praise you for it. Keep our eyes fixed on you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've picked up that Jesus is really important, important to us, important to our church. Uh, it's not just that Jesus happened to be you know, really insightful on some things, 
but it is that for those of us who met him, sometimes in the hours of deepest need, we saw him and we fell in love with him and we've loved him ever since. I hope you've kind of picked up that that's where we are as a church, that we're a congregation in love with Jesus. I just cut to the chase on the sermon. The problem is, it's, is that so often we fall out of love. We lose that first love that we have with Christ. And this issue isn't just a matter of emotionality. It's not just a matter of uh, are you like a really committed Christian or a not-so-committed Christian? It actually lies at the very heart of having a relationship to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 8, it's there at verse 42, I think it is, um, that uh, uh, Jesus was talking with his opponents. They, they were Jewish religious leaders, and they were telling Jesus what was wrong with his thought and why he wasn't who he claimed to be. And so as they were having this dialogue, and in some cases they were arguing with Jesus, and in the midst of that, one of the things Jesus said to them, he said this, if God were your father, in other words, if you really know God, if you have a personal relationship with God, if God to you is more than just God and stuff, right? You know where that comes from. You ask your friends, do you believe in God? Yes, I believe in God and stuff. What do they mean? They mean I have this generic sense of God and I have no other thought about it. I really don't care, but I believe in God and stuff. Jesus said, if you know God the Father, if you know the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Folks, if you know God who is the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that's what he's talking about. If you have a personal relationship with God the Father. So he says to these people, he says, if God were your Father, you would love me. He said, if you love God, if you love the true and living God, you will love the Son. Jesus said, if you know God the Father, you will love me. Now understand the people that he was talking to right here. These were folks who were Jewish by upbringing, Jewish by tradition, and they were Jewish by conviction. What that meant was every day of their lives, they prayed a prayer called the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word that means here. It's the first word in the prayer. And it goes like this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, your soul, your strength, with everything in you. So every day of their lives, these opponents of Jesus have been praying and saying, we need to love God. And Jesus comes along and says, well, if you actually know God, the Father, if you actually know him, you will love me. You've been praying, you shall love the Lord your God, you will love me. There's kind of like a claim to deity there. There's sort of like a, a claim to divine status. We won't go deeply into it right now, but Jesus is saying your relationship to the Father hinges on how you relate to me, on whether or not you love me. To his disciples just before he was arrested, he said, look, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, it will have a follow-through. And then after the resurrection, when he met with Peter, some of you remember this, that Jesus went to Peter and they were having a conversation. And one of the things Jesus said was, Peter, 
Do you walk? Do you love me? After all we've been through, do you love me? Peter said, yeah, I think you're a great guy. I like you. Jesus said, no, do you love me? I think what was going on there was Peter was still old-style macho, old-style masculine. Guys don't talk like that. I'm glad we're past that. I'm glad I can go to brothers in Christ and just say, I love you, brother. I'm glad for that. The past generations, they, they hesitated on that, and so Peter says, yeah, Jesus, I think you're really fine. I like you a lot. Finally, Jesus says, Peter, do you like me? And Peter said, yeah. But that's how crucial it is that we love Jesus. You want to ask me why we love him, why I love him? I love him because he's beautiful in a world that is ugly. I love him because he's kind in a world that is cruel. I love him because he speaks words of infinite wisdom in a world that is foolish. I love him because of all the people I love, Jesus loves them more. I love him because his blood is on the cross and not mine. I love him because he rolled away the stone from the tomb and came out. And when he did, not only his tomb, but the promise of my tomb will be empty. I love him because he's not just a suggestion on how to live. I love him because he's the way and he's the truth and the life. I love him not because he's the light at the end of the tunnel. I love him because he's light in the midst of the tunnel. I love him because no matter where I have traveled, he has been there first. I love him because he has the answers before I have the questions. I love him because he knows who I am better than I know myself. And I love him because he is infinitely lovely. You ask me why I love him, because of who he is and what he has done and his infinite love for me. But we lose track of that. We know we are to love him, and yet we lose that. That's, that's what's happening to this church in Ephesus. Let, let, let's read that, that letter to get, uh, together again. It's in uh, Revelation chapter 2. It starts in verse 1, and Jesus is talking to this church. They, they get a letter from Jesus. Work with me here. They get the envelope, and they see the handwriting of Jesus, and their heart just sort of, sort of uh, thumps a little bit harder. Oh, we got a letter from Jesus. Would you like a letter from Jesus to us this morning? This is, this is his letter. Perhaps it's to our church this morning. And so they're getting a letter from Jesus and the angel, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this, the words of him who holds the stars, the seven stars, who holds the authority over the church, who holds the right to lead and to guide the church, the one who is the comforter and the counselor of the church, the one who is the great shepherd of the church, the one who is ultimately and only the pastor of the church, Jesus alone, he says, the one who holds these seven stars and who walks among the seven 
golden lampstands and a supernatural fellowship that we enjoy personally in Christ, but also corporately and together whenever we worship. Just get two or three of us together, and there he is in the midst of us. We are worshiping him who walks in the midst of the church. That's who is here. That's who is looking at what's happening and seeing what's happening. This Jesus with all authority here in our midst, the one who holds the stars and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This is what he says. I know your works. He says, I know what you're doing. He says, I see that. It's sort of like he starts from the outside, what you can see from the outside. He says, I see every time you, you get a, a little Operation Christmas Child box together. He says, I see that. He says, I notice every time you volunteer for children's church. Hint, hint, hint. He says, I see every time you've prepared a Sunday school lesson. I, I see every time that you've, you've shown up to be a counselor or a guide. I've, I've, I've seen every time that you've worked together to, to, uh, on vacation Bible school. I, I see when you've gone to camps with the kids. I've seen when you've gone on mission trips. He says, I see your work. I see what you do. I, I take great delight in all that. I see that work on the outside that everyone can see. Oh, what a blessing it is to know that Jesus sees our work. He knows what's going on. He says, I know your works. I know your toil. He says, I know how hard you're working. See, you, you see the outside result of the works. Now I'm going on the inside, and I see that sometimes it means sacrifice for you. Sometimes it means you're giving up a little bit of time to prepare that Sunday school lesson. It means you're giving up a little bit of time to serve on the hospitality committee. It means you're giving up a little bit of your time so that you can be with the children. It, it means you're, you're giving up your time for the sake of the work of the church. He says, I see your toil, and I see your patient endurance. You don't grow weary. You don't get tired. You don't complain about it very much. And, and I see that. But not only do I see on the outside, I, I see what you're doing. He says, but you go a little bit deeper, and I see that you cannot stand the pollution of the gospel. I see that you cannot stand those who are evil and that you've tested those who claim to be preachers of the gospel, but they're not. They're, they're purveying some other kind of gospel with some other kind of message. He says, I, I, I can see on the inside that when you hear a sermon, you're counting how much does this bring me closer to Jesus, not how much does this help me with helpful hints in my life, but you're counting is God glorified, not am I helped. Now you're helped when God is glorified, but the focus, he says, I, I see that you've got your doctrine straight. You know what you believe and you know what you teach. He says, I see all those kinds of things on the outside. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you're not getting weary and you keep running into the world and the society and the culture in which you live and you're, you're getting pushed and kicked around by it. I see all that. Jesus sees that in us. Oh, I'm so thankful for our church. I'm thankful for our church where we have hard workers, diligent workers, tireless workers. I love our church because there's a sense of the gospel going on. It's not just a sense of, oh, let's all make nice, but there's a sense of awe. There's a sense of let's glorify God. Let's exalt him among the nations. I, I love that our doctrine is good, as good as we can get it. And I, I love that we care about one another. And I love about all those things. And Jesus says, I see that in you. I see such a wonderful church. Verse 4, but I have this against you. 
You've abandoned the love you had at first. You've left off the love. I, I learned it this way. You've lost your first love. Where did it go? Jesus said, I have this against you. You know, I've been, I've been uh, uh, the pastor here at this church for something over 36 years. And in that time, uh, there have been people who have either called me or written me letters to tell me what they think of me and to tell me uh, that, that they have something against me. And normally I say, you got the wrong church. You meant St. Charles. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, some people feel like it's their duty bound to tell me what's wrong with me, and I, I get that. I understand. You, probably you, got, you, you do the same thing. You get people who say things about you, and you, you don't know where they come from. But, you know, every now and then, you know, one time I got a letter. It was about three pages long, and... Uh, it explained to me in excruciating detail how bad I was. And I want to tell you something. I listen to those, and, I, I, you know, they, they affect you, but I don't care what they think. I care what Jesus thinks. Ultimately, I care what Jesus thinks. You know. Now, if you want to tell me what's right with me, I'll care what you think. <laughs> but Jesus says, I have this against you, and your ears prick up. Your ears... You know, you, you just want to take this in. What does Jesus say? He says he likes my work. He likes my diligence. He likes my toil. He likes my perseverance. He likes my doctrine. He likes my ability to withstand persecution. He likes all these things, but he says he has something against me. What more, what more is there? And Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have lost your first love. Some of us remember when we first fell in love with Jesus. I don't think Thomas ever forgot the day that he was in a room with his buddies and suddenly Jesus showed up, the resurrected Jesus. And Thomas looked at him and for the first time since the crucifixion, he saw Jesus. And he fell on his knees. And he said, Jesus, I love you like crazy. Now, the way he said it was my Lord and my God, but that's what he meant. He said, Jesus, I love you like crazy, and I'm going to give my life to you, and there's nothing I would, I would rather do than spend my life loving you. That's what it means, my Lord, my God. I don't think Peter ever forgot the moment when Jesus sent the angel to him. Because the resurrected Jesus, you remember he said, I, I'm, I'm going to Galilee. Go tell my disciples, and you remember what's added to that. And Peter, go tell Peter. He blew it. I knew he would blow it. He didn't think so. I knew he would blow it. He denied me three times. He's off somewhere. He's miserable. I know he's miserable. I can't stand him to be miserable anymore. Now you go tell Peter that I'm alive, that I am risen. And I can't believe but that Peter remembered that moment when he first saw the resurrected Jesus. And he said, I love you like crazy, Lord. I really do. I can remember the moment I saw Jesus full face on who loved me in spite of my bitterness, who loved me in spite of my hatreds, and he took them from me. I had known him before, but that moment, my sophomore year, the fall semester of college, I fell in love with him. Loved him ever since. Jesus said, You've lost your first love. Have you forgotten what it was like? You know, when you first fall in love, you know what it's like. You say, I, I want to be with her all the time. 
I, I just want to hear her talk. You've lost your first love, guys. <laughs> I want to be with her. I want to do things for her. I want to give things to her. I want her to be happy. I just want her to notice me. It's enough just to be with her. You remember that. And somewhere along the way, you stopped. And somewhere along the way, you lost that first love. Somewhere along the way, we said, Jesus, I'm too busy today. I'll see you tomorrow. Somewhere along the way, we said, Jesus, I'm, I'm busy. There's a ball game on. I'll, I'll read your word tomorrow. Somewhere along the way, we said, Jesus, I, I'd really like to serve you with my life, but, you know, i got a lot of other things going on that are more important. Somewhere along the way, we said, Jesus, I do love you, but I don't love you like crazy anymore. I do love you, but I, I don't love you enough to actually make a difference. Jesus said, this I have against you. You've lost your first love. When a church loses that first love for Jesus, we're on the way to dying. Oh, we might survive in numbers. We might survive financially. The building might stay here forever. There might always be a group of people coming in to do something. But if you've lost your love for Jesus, the church is on its way to dying. And one generation will sort of love him. The next generation will sort of like him. The third generation will mention him occasionally. And the last generation will say, who, who, who is this Jesus they kept talking about? That's why Jesus says, you've lost your first love. That's what I have against you. It's all wrapped up in that love like crazy for Jesus. Jesus said, you've lost your first love. But here, here here's what I want you to do. Verse 5, it says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, from whence you have fallen. That's King James. But remember from whence you have fallen. Remember what it was like when you would dare anything for the sake of Jesus? Do you remember what it was like when you loved him so much that just in the name of Jesus you would go out and conquer the world? Or in the name of Jesus you would just sit and stand and be ready? You remember what it was like when you, when you loved Jesus so much. There was no limit to what you would give, no limit to what you would sacrifice. There was no limit to the people you would tell. There was no limit to your worship. There was no limits because you loved him with that first love you like crazy love. Jesus says, remember that. That wasn't phony. That wasn't a phase. That wasn't just a, a misguided emotionalism. He says, that's what I called you to be. I called you to be in love with me. Because you know the Father, you're going to love me. He says, I've called you to be in love with me. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. Understand, something is wrong here. Something's not right, and it's my fault. It's not like Jesus left me. I have left him. It's my fault. I'm the one who got distracted. I'm the one who got too busy. I'm the one who loved other things. It's my fault. He said, repent. So remember what it was like? Repent, understand that there's, there's something wrong here and that it's my fault, it's something that I have done. Repent and do the works you did at first. Just, just do them. Do what you did in those opening stages of love for Jesus Christ. Do those. We could spend more time on it. The time eludes us now. He says, now, now, if you don't do that, he says, I'll come and remove your lampstand. Now, he's not talking about salvation. 
Remember, the lampstand stands for the church. But what does Jesus say? He, he says, look, if you don't love Jesus with that first crazy love for Jesus, if you don't love him that way, the church is on its way to dying, and ultimately the lampstand will be removed. Look, there's a lot of reasons why churches close their doors. Sometimes the community moves away from them. Sometimes the local factory closes down and everybody just relocates and, and there just aren't any people there. Sometimes they've, they've done a ministry and God has, has, has just... Uh, rewarded them greatly over the years, and now it's time to just move on. There are many reasons for that. But let it never be said of our church that God closed our doors because we forgot to love Jesus. Let it always be said that even if only two of us were here, we were crazy in love with Jesus because the rest of it just doesn't matter without that first love for Christ. And so Jesus says to the church, if you want a permanent place for your lampstand, lamp just, just stay in love with me. Go back to that first kind of love for me. You have this. You hate the Nicolaitans. Then in verse 7, he says, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I thought he was just talking to one church. No, he was talking to all of us. And then he says, hear what the Spirit says. I thought it was Jesus talking. No, it's the Holy Spirit talking. You've got the Trinity thing going there, three and one going on there. So Jesus speaking to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking to our church, and he says, to the one who conquers, I'll grant that everlasting life, that infinite joy, that infinite worship, that infinite love in heaven with the Father. This is what I grant to you. This, this, this is what comes your way, and it's all tied together with the love for Jesus. And so my, my challenge to you this morning is that you, you would just sit down. At, at some point this week, make up your mind right now. I won't ask you when it is, but what day of the week is it going to be? Is it going to be tomorrow, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday? Don't leave it till Thursday or Friday. You'll forget. But sometime early this coming week, just sit down and just gauge your priorities. Just write down on a, list, on a piece of paper the things I love and write them down in the order in which you love them. And when you come to Jesus, don't put where he ought to be because we all know that. Put him where he really is. And here's the great thing. This is another reason why we love Jesus, that when you come to him, say, Jesus, I just made my list, and you're number eight. I want you to be number one. He doesn't bear grudges. He doesn't say you had your chance. He doesn't say, well, first you've got to suffer. When you say, Jesus, I want to love you with a number one love, he says, and you know something? I love you too. And that changes your life. That'll transform your life. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the same church. It's called the Letter to the Ephesians. We're going to be looking at that for the next uh, six, seven months, whatever it takes us to go through that. But before we look at what Paul says to the church, I wanted us to hear what Jesus says to the church. And it's this. Love me. Above all else, be in love with Jesus. Let's bow together for prayer. And Father in heaven, I'm so thankful and grateful that your love is inexhaustible, unending. Father, it is not lessened in any degree. Help us to know that love, rely on that love, live in that love. And Father, give us hearts to love you in return, that by your grace, we would found to be in love with Jesus. Father, I pray for the folks in this room. Just give to each one a heart that loves you. I ask it in Jesus' name.